Book One, Chapter Sixteen of Clara Vaughan, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckel. Clara Vaughan, Volume One by R. D. Blackmore. Book One, Chapter Sixteen. About half a mile from Tossel's Barton, the farmhouse where we lived, there is a valley, or rather a vast ravine of a very uncommon formation a narrow winding rocky comb where slabs and tors and boulder stones seem pasturing on the velvet grass or looking into the bright trout stream which leaps down a flight of steps without a tree to shade its flash and foam this narrow but glad dingle as it nears the sea bursts suddenly back into a desert gorge cleaving the heights that front the bristol channel the mountain sides from right and left straight as if struck by rule steeply converge like a high-pitched roof turned upside down so steep indeed that none can climb them along the deep bottom gleams a silver cord where the cramped stream chafes its way bedded and banked in stone without a blade of green from top to bottom of this huge ravine there is no growth no rocks no cliffs no place to stay the foot but all a barren hard gray stretch of shingle slates and glittery stones as if the ballast of ten million fleets had been shot in two enormous piles and were always on the slip looking at it we forget that there is such a thing as life the desolation is not painful because it is so grand the brief noon glare of the sun on these titanic dry walls where even a lichen dies the gaunt desert shade stealing back to its lair in the early afternoon the solemn step of evening stooping to her cloak below i know not which of these is the most impressive and mournful no stir of any sort no voice of man or beast no flow of tide ever comes to visit here the little river after a course of battles wins no peaceful union with the sea but ponds against a shingle bar and gurgles away in slow whirlpools only a fitful moaning wind draws up and down the melancholy chasm the famous valley of rocks some four miles to the east seems to me commonplace and tame compared to this grand defile yet how many men i know who would smoke their pipes throughout it thinking so much of this place i long wished my mother to see it and finding her rather stronger one lovely april morning i persuaded her forth embarked on mrs huxtable's donkey we went down a small tributary glen toward the head of the great defile the little glen was bright and green and laughing into bud and bantering a swift brook which could hardly stop to answer but left the ousels as it passed to talk at leisure about their nests and the trout to make those musical leaps that sound so crisp through the alders another stream meets it among the bushes below and now they are entitled to the dignity of a bridge whereon grows the maidenhair fern and which with its rude and pointed arch looks like an old pack-saddle upon the stream from this point we followed a lane leading obliquely up the ascent before the impassable steep begins having tethered our quiet donkey to a broken gate i took my mother along a narrow path through the thicket to the view of the great ravine standing at the end of this path she was astonished at the scene before her we had gained a height of about two hundred feet the hilltop stretched a thousand feet above us we stood on the very limit of vegetation a straight line passing down the hill where the quarry-like steep begins my dear mother was tired and i had called her to come home lest the view should make her giddy when suddenly she stepped forward to gather a harebell 
straggling among the stones. The shingle beneath her foot gave way, then below her and around and above her head began in a great mass to glide. Buried to the knees and falling sideways, she was sinking, slowly at first, then quickly, and quicker yet, with a hoarse roar of moving tons of stone, gathering and whelming upon her down the rugged abyss. Screaming, I leaped into the avalanche after her, never thinking that I could only do harm. Stronger and swifter and louder, and surging and burged with shouldering stone, the solid cascade rushed on. I saw a dearest mother below me trying to clasp her hands in prayer and to give me her last word. With a desperate effort, dragging my shawl from the gulfing crash, I threw it towards her, but she did not try to grasp it. A heavy stone leaped over me and struck her on the head. Her head dropped back. She lay senseless and nearly buried. We were dashing more headlong and headlong in the rush of the mountain side to the precipice over the river and my senses had all but failed, and revenge was prone before judgment, when I heard through the din a shout. On the brink of firm ground stood a man, and signed me to throw my shawl. With all my remaining strength I did so, but not as he meant, for I cast it entirely to him, and pointed to my mother below. One instant the avalanche paused. He leaped about twenty feet down through the heather and gorse, and stayed his descent by clutching a stout ash sapling. To this, in a moment, he fastened my shawl, a long and strong plaid, and just as my mother was being swept by, he plunged with the other end into the shingle's hide. I saw him leap and struggle toward her, and lift her out of the gliding tomb, gliding himself the while, and sway himself and his burden by means of the shawl, not back, for that was impossible, but obliquely downwards. I saw the strong sapling bow to the strain like a fishing-rod, while hope and terror fought hard within me. I saw him, by a desperate effort, which bent the ash-tree to the ground, leap from the whirling havoc, and lay my mother on the dead fern and heath. Of the rest I know nothing, having become quite unconscious before he saved me in the same manner. We must have been taken home in Farmer Huxtable's butt, for I remember well that, amidst the stir and fright of our return, and while my mother was still insensible, Mrs. Huxtable fell savagely upon poor Suke, for having dispatched that elegant vehicle without cleaning it from the lime-dust, whereby, as she declared, our dresses, so rent and tattered by the jagged stones, were muxed up to shorts. Poor Suke would have been likely to fare much worse if at such a time she had stopped to dust the cart. When the farmer came home, his countenance, rich in capacity for expressing astonishment, far outdid his words. Wolf, wolf, sure, whether he did or no, was all the vent he could find, for his ideas during the rest of the day, though it was plain to all who knew him that he was thinking profoundly upon the subject, and wholly occupied with it. In the course of the following week he advised me very impressively never to do it again, and nothing could ever persuade him but that I had jumped in, and my mother came to rescue me. But his wife very soon had all her wits about her. She set to come for the doctor. I begged that it might not be Mr. Dawes' physician, she put dear mother to bed and dressed her wounds with simples worth ten druggists' shops and bathed her temples with rosemary and ran down to the glen for fatheriham valerian which she had declared would kill nine sorts of inflammation and then she hushed the entire household permitting no tongue to move except her own and beat her eldest boy a fine young huxtable for crying whereupon he roared she even conquered her strong desire to know much more than all could tell and showed my mother such true kindness and pity that I loved her for it at once and ever since. Breathing slowly and heavily, my poor mother lay in the bed, 
which had long been the pride of Tossel's Barton. The bedstead was made of carved oak, as many of them are in North Devon, and would have been handsome and striking if some ancestral Huxtable had not adorned it with whitewash. But the quilt was what they were proud of. It was formed of patches of diamond shape and most incongruous colours, with a death's head in the centre and crossbones underneath. When I first beheld it, I tossed it down the stairs, but my mother would have it brought back and used, because she knew how the family gloried in it, and she could not bear to hurt their feelings. One taper-white hand lay on it now, with the tender skin bruised and discoloured by blows. She had closed the finger which bore her wedding ring, and it still remained curved and rigid. In an agony of tears I knelt by the side of the bed, watching her placid and death-like face. Till then I had never known how strongly and deeply I loved her. I firmly believe that she was revived in some degree by the glare of the patched quilt upon her eyes. The antagonism of nature was roused and brought home her wandering powers. Feebly glancing away, she came suddenly to herself and exclaimed, Is she safe? Is she safe? Yes, mother, here I am, with my own dear mother. She opened her arms and held me in a nervous, cold embrace, and thanked God, and wept. End of chapter 16